0: Welcome to Equinox, Episode 9. We are striking the balance between the light and the dark. Thanks for tuning in this week. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It has been a fast and furious week while I've been spending time with the family at home. I got the kids. We're going to state parks again. It's been pretty fun. Um, The pollen is still sweeping the city, sweeping the town. It is uh, causing some headaches, literal headaches. Yes, that was a figure of speech. My
1: eyes, my car.
0: Yes. Now you're you're back to
1: work. Is that right? Uh, this is a work week for me. Yeah, I spent um, Tuesday in the warehouse packing boxes and shipping things out. Uh, our customers at CMI have been very good to us, and they've ordered a lot of things. And I worked like a dog all day
0: long, shipping, 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 shipping. Awesome. And it is good. It's it's so good to see it. It is a really good time since everybody is homeschooling to, you know, grab some more books, grab some new educational resources and documentaries. And we're selling a lot of those sorts of things,
1: kid stuff and educational sorts of stuff.
0: I have seen so many people that are saying like now they appreciate homeschoolers and stay at home homemakers. (laughs) It's so fun. Imagine that. Like, whoa, I never realized it was actual job. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's all these memes of people wanting to do terrible things to their kids. It's just not right. <laughs> That's the funniest one. <laughs> Week two of
1: homeschooling, and <laughs> the mother's holding a, a tissue up to her son's nose. <laughs> Let's see if
0: chloroform has a smell. <laughs> <laughs> nope, 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 nope. None of that going on here. I hope your children are listening to Equinox as well. We try to keep it family friendly, and it's a clean show. And it maybe, if our listeners want to get pointed to some resources for children, for families that the parents can enjoy as well, that'd be a great topic for another episode just to say, hey, this is stuff that the family can do pertaining to science, places to see, yeah. movies to watch, and books, books to, read. to read. And creation.com is a good source.
1: Hint, hint, hint. Yeah.
0: And it's true. We're not just saying it, we would be using the website because, well, we do use the website.
1: Yeah. And all those books and things I've got on my, my bookshelves, I, mean, I cannot tell you how many things I purchased from
0: CMI over the years. Yeah. The creationists are sweeping the nation. We are changing things. We are even dabbling in filmmaking. Yes. And we're we getting are. into environmentalism today, Rob. Yes, I think this is an excellent choice. I think that this is a first. Did I just introduce the topic? Yes, you did. Holy cow. You picked the topic. Is that what this feels like? Yeah. Oh, you, okay.
1: Last week you picked it. And I was like, ah, excellent choice. Fantastic. Especially because Earth Day. Earth Day.
0: Dun, 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 dun. Happy birthday, planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is a environmental yeah. episode. I don't know how they picked April 22nd to be Earth Day, but... I don't either. That's a little bit after my birthday. When you've uh-huh. heard this, it'll be past my birthday. Oh, is it now? Well, happy yeah. birthday, man. Thank you.
1: You made another year. Yeah. Another lap around the sun.
0: It feels very good. This is a good time of life. It's a, the prime season of life with the children, marriage, job, the South. I love my work. I love what I do here on planet Earth. Oh, that's nice to hear. And I'm not hurting anybody either or the planet. You don't think you're hurting a planet. You're a parasite. Don't you know that? Oh, Rob, you just like raining on my flower. <laughs> on my flower. <laughs> so the way that this came up, this subject of environmentalism and Earth Day, we actually decided what an Earth Day was going to be this year. No, I'm kidding. We were talking about a Christian filmmaker's documentary, The Riot and the Dance, and I don't know that I would have brought it up, but we did want to review some films on Equinox, and then there was a good reason for bringing it up, Earth Day 1, and also the part two of the Riot and the Dance documentary called Water. My specialty? A great time to have a, a marine biologist in the podcast. But we also wanted to cover
1: cultural topics and the Christian's response to cultural topics how we're supposed to be involved in the world. And the environment is a very important thing. And we see a lot of our friends poo-pooing a lot of things that are near and dear to me. And so part of this is reaching out, trying to reach across the aisle to our other Christian conservative friends and say, hey guys, this is not all you know, earth worship. There's some important
0: things here that we really do need to pay attention to. So what does this have to do with the film? What does environmentalism have to do with a nature documentary? Doesn't it just seem like it is stereotypical of the genre nowadays? Anything from public broadcasting or even a nature documentary at Netflix, it seems like part of the genre is we have to show the way that the environment is being ruined and just let you itch a little bit and get uncomfortable in your seat, hoping and praying that something is going to change. That's because fear sells. Mm Mm-hmm. So what we have here is a pretty interesting filmmaker and professor and his documentary and his series is expanding. So we thought now would be just a really good time to discuss it. Yeah. Now,
1: I've met the filmmaker, professor, author, uh, Dr. Gordon Wilson. He's a very, very interesting fellow. How did you know him? How did you make contact? Uh, Just through circles because, you know, as a creationist and he's a creationist, then we scientists stick together and I've met him Twice, I think. Maybe three times, but I think at least twice. And he's just on fire for basically snakes. He loves snakes and other reptiles.
0: Yes, so I have seen. Yes, yes. His first movie was very uh, scaly. It just seemed to culminate in the third act on snakes and scales and the yes. venomous type. And the second
1: type. movie, he wasted the end, but he does get to something with scales. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. There's some snakes in the middle of it, too. So, Gordon, he's on fire for God's creation. He loves studying it. He loves looking at things. He's getting down the dirt. He's he's a fascinating, fascinating teacher. I would love to have had him as a college professor for myself. He's inspiring. But he's also, I believe the proper word would be, an environmentalist. So, can you do those two things at the same time? Do you have to sell your soul? (laughs) Whoa. Okay. I mean, to the communist green agenda... Or can you be a conservative
0: Christian and hold to environmental principles at the same time? So, are we talking political, or are we just talking about like as a worldview? Can you appreciate all things and 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 appreciate the environment as a part of your worldview? So, you're not talking politically. You're talking about how would you put it?
1: Well, I don't know. If, you know, I am, in my own words, one of the most conservative environmentalists
0: that I've ever met.
1: There should be more of us. I there would should help be more myself of yeah. among them, but okay. I
0: I can't say that I'm politically, actively a environmentalist.
1: I don't think I am actively either, but I don't necessarily poo poo you know global warming. I don't say, oh, these environmental laws are ridiculous. You know, the, the the earth will heal itself, or the earth takes care of itself, or recycling is nonsense and things like that. I think environmental policies in government and in society are very good for us. And yeah, it cost extra money to build stuff in the United States because of environmental restrictions. But then again, I like the fact that our environment is cleaner now than it was when I was growing up in
0: the 70s. I remember growing up in the 90s, seeing a lot of litter here and around town. I remember seeing black smoke belching from every car. Mm -hmm.
1: It's just the way it was. And then, you know, they put catalytic converters on things and gas shot up in price after that. And it's been hard to weather the storm of economic problems, but on the other hand, yeah, it costs us money, but look around you, man.
0: Things are better than they were. Yeah, definitely. For just even breathing, for our own sakes, if not to mention for the the environment. Yeah. Do you ever hear of Love Canal? Mm, It rings a bell, but I don't remember why. It was a housing
1: development in in New York that was built basically on top of a a toxic sludge dump. Oh my goodness. Well, that's never going to happen again. We're never going to get a housing development built on top of a toxic site because of regulations and tracking. I've um, been up to Oak Ridge National Labs. In fact, I have a friend who works at EPA. His job is overseeing the environmental cleanup at America's first nuclear processing facility. And you walk around that, those grounds, There's still, there's taped off areas with, with radiation signs. Do not go here. Because back in the 40s, they just dumped stuff on the ground. Or they just, you know, got a bunch of uranium sludge. I just put it in the pile over there. That's never going to happen again. Very good. Yeah, we're getting better. In fact, there was a, another documentary about 10 or 15 years ago. It's hard to find on YouTube because another movie called Blue came out. But this original documentary is just called Blue. Now, I cannot say that I agree with every single political or environmental thing said in here. But within five minutes, I said, yeah, that's me. Hmm. I'm not green. I'm blue. Hmm. I'm positive. I think that we can identify the environmental problems we have and we can overcome them.
0: Yeah, especially the things that are man-made,
1: obviously. Exactly. And we can use a free market to do it. We don't need socialism to to pursue environmental goals. We can use a free market because we're smart. We don't want to live in filth. We don't want our children to live in filth. And we can say, hey, this is an issue. Let's fix it. And I think we can do that. Mm -hmm. So that puts me different from... Most of the other environmentalists who are politically on the left side of the spectrum,
0: and I'm definitely not, and neither are you. Mm-mm. So what you're getting at is, is this related to our Christian principles and values? And the answer is yes. Yeah, but where would a Christian get that from? See, a lot of the time, it doesn't come up in church. It doesn't get raised in Sunday school. No. And because of political agendas and two sides political spectrums, it seems like you either hate planet earth and want to waste it, or you're hugging trees and you're kissing the frog totes, you know, or you just don't think about it. Or you just don't think about
1: yeah, it. You th- cigarette butts get thrown on the ground or, you know, you change an oil in your car and half of it spills out on your grass, whatever, you know, maybe plastics you
0: just, and cardboards and straws. Yeah. Well, that stuff doesn't come up in a text like the scrolls and parchments of Christianity that are 2,000 plus years old.
1: What if it comes up on the first page? What? There's something that has been abused by people for a long time. It's called the dominion mandate. And a lot of people say, oh, see that? We have dominion over the earth. We can do what we want. Which is twisting it out of proportion. Let me let me read the dominion mandate. This is right after God creates Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So is that saying that we have ultimate rule over everything? Or is that saying that God put us here as stewards of his creation? Clearly the latter. The latter. The latter. And if we are stewards, or if Adam and Eve were stewards, we've inherited that responsibility. In fact, interestingly, this is where in the Western world we get property rights from. You are in charge of whatever God has given you to be in charge of. Yeah. This is a definition of personal property, but the earth itself is not our personal property. It is Mm -hmm. God's property that he has lent to us to take care of. That puts a totally different spin on my approach to the green part
0: of existence. And a lot of the scripture brings up stewardship. It is about stewardship, relating to one another, relating to yeah. uh, your resources.
1: Yeah, it's like God gives us children.
0: They're not our children.
1: We don't, we don't, we're not in, they're not ours or God's children. He lends us for a while until mm-hmm. they grow up. And our job is to nurture, care for them, and then release them into the wild. Right. Well, God might have given us some squirrels in our backyard or some oak trees or earthworms mm-hmm. or humus in the soil. He's given us flush toilets. Oh, that's lovely, but I want to know where that stuff goes when I flush it and I don't want to be polluting the river so the guys downstream can't get any fresh water.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Which was a massive problem for a long time, specifically in places like um, upstate New York where he had all of these cities on the Hudson River that were pulling water in and then dumping water out again and the next town downstream was pulling water in and dumping water out again and the next town downstream was pulling water out and dumping water back in but the water coming back in wasn't clean water and so it just got worse and worse and worse the further down the river you went so there's also a love your neighbor sort of aspect to this mm. that we can't just waste what we've been given but this is hard because it takes science and it takes money and it takes
0: effort it takes a little bit of storytelling Yes. And filmmaking. Okay. Going back to the film then. Mm-hmm. So who is this guy? Gordon Wilson. I hardly know anything about him. Yes. Nice
1: guy. A fascinating individual. Very much on fire and, and, and loves science and loves people. But he's a he's a professor at New St. Andrews. Yes. Which is a, a college in Moscow, Idaho. And he's a very much a Christian
0: and very much an environmentalist. And an author. He's published a couple of books, one of them going back to 2015 by the same name as his first documentary, The Riot and the Dance. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It does look like it is a, more of a textbook, and it's over 150 pages, and it's got a teacher's guide. It probably is pretty good. I mean, even the cover impresses me. Well, and Based on his
1: movie making, that's impressive enough also.
0: Yeah. You know, as it concerns films, they wind up being abridged versions of a book's content. So if it's anything like the book, it's going to be far more rich than the film, and even the film was pretty rich.
1: He's written another book, which I've read. Uh, It's called A Different Shade of Green. And that one's newer, right? Yeah. yeah, Published in the last year? Yeah. A Christian Approach to Environmentalism. And honestly, it was a very refreshing and enjoyable book. It wasn't loaded down with technicalities. There's no math. There's no numbers. It's, It's worshipful almost. He's just taking all these different subjects and pointing out how... The Christian
0: should approach these subjects. It's it's fascinating. I'm looking at it right now. It says Christian responsibility for the natural world goes back to the very beginning when God commanded us to fill the earth and subdue it. The dominion mandate is an authoritative alternative to both environmental activists and to those who think conservation is a word progressives made up.
1: I was going to, in fact, I probably still will write a review for this for creation.com, but I found it very hard to summarize the book. Because I highlighted so much material. No, oh, that's a good book. <laughs> Great books. I don't highlight hardly ever. This is like right in the very beginning of the book. First, mankind was commanded to take godly dominion, Genesis 128. And unfortunately, secularists have taken up this global responsibility motivated by a number of godless worldviews. Yeah, and that's what we struggle with. We see the other side of the political spectrum, you know, environment, 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 green, 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 green. And I look at them and say, you're a bunch of communists. So the next reaction is, I'm not going to do that. I'm not a communist. But that's a mistake that we can make. And many Christians have laid down the responsibility. We should have been championing this the whole way through. But we let our political opponents pick up the slack. So boo on us. But how do we do it without being sanctimonious? How do we do it without sounding holier than thou? How do we... Go team, go team, but not, oh, you stink if you're not doing this. How do we do without judgmentalism? How do we encourage people?
0: That's, That's very difficult stuff. I think part of it is just being honest about treating the stewardship like you ought to, because the world is not ours. If we are dealing with public property, we would know better than to just destroy the picnic table. And if we go into the bathroom, we know we don't want to leave the faucet on. And if we, in the toilet clogged, for a lot of uh, people, it just means respecting other people's property and being reminded that the property in general around you is not your own. So for a lot of people, it, I
1: like that. That's a good way to approach it.
0: That is just like the, yeah, the common sense approach to any kind of environmentalist stewardship, because you're, you're thinking like you've come across rodents, birds, other you know insects, their dwellings, You don't want to mess with their homes and habitats. You don't want to mar and destroy trees just necessarily because you can. I remember being a kid and I remember just loving to whack trees. I remember (laughs) trying to use a slingshot to hit a Robin just because I could. Yeah.
1: Peeling bark off of a living tree just to see what it was like and. Yeah. Breaking branches and smashing. Yeah. All the time.
0: But I loved Robins and I, and I wanted to look at their cool eggs in their nests that is priceless. You know, like you ever seen those commercials that say, let's put prices on everything. You know, you know, the hot dog at the ballpark, $2, you know, a night out with your dad at the ball game, priceless. Seeing the eggs of the Robin in the nest is priceless. And I don't really mean to cause Robin's harm. And I know better than that today. And I want to pass that conscientious, compassionate common sense to the next generation. I remember as a kid, you know, young teenager, just being dumb. And
1: two friends and I were up at a, at a place in upstate New York. We were cross-country skiing with our families. Just beautiful winter weather. And there was this one particular place with little waterfalls and lots of splashing. And, and the ice would completely cover the rocks around this this one place. And it was a destination for most of the people on the cross-country skiing trail. Well, we skied up there. And one of us threw a rock and smashed something. And it fell down. Oh, we laughed and laughed and laughed. And pretty soon, we had smashed all the ice. Oh, leaving a disaster zone. But I wasn't thinking.
0: Yeah. I was just like,
1: hey, check out these things smashing. And we just smashed everything because. Just because. If something's fun, it's good. (laughs) But I wasn't thinking of the next people. I wasn't thinking that I was leaving a a mark on the world that was ugly. And that's just an example. And I can bring up others that I just wasn't thinking. There's a, um, a thing in England. It was called the commons. That was a, a field or an area that was set apart for the common folk to do whatever they wanted. So they could put a farm on there, or a couple cows, or well, the a, a community uh, center of sorts. A, well, but it was field. It was land. It's community land. Community property. There was a uh, marine biologist. He wrote an article called "The Tragedy of the Commons." Oh. The Commons was always a disaster. Oh, uh? there weren't any <laughs> rules. Oh, wow. Huh. It's the, you know, the Lord would set off, I'm such a nice Lord. I'm going to give some land to the peasants for them to do as they want. But <laughs> everyone can't do what they want. You had mutually competing ideas for the use of that land mm, at yeah. the same time and it was always a complete and total disaster. Well, a lot of the, the way we treat nature is that way, as, just in humans in general. In the water, we can easily take every single fish out of the ocean. We have mm. the technology. In fact, we've been doing that for hundreds of years. Oh. Have you ever heard of um, the mutiny on the bounty? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Famous story where Captain Bly was a, supposedly a bad captain, and they, they mutinied, and they put him in a ship, and then the, the guys you know, disappeared into history. Actually, they still, it was a real story, and was, their yeah, descendants yeah. are still alive today. <sighs> but the reason the bounty was sent around the world is they sent the bounty to Tahiti to pick up some breadfruit trees. And then bring the breadfruit trees back to Jamaica because the slave population in Jamaica was starving mm. because they'd eaten all the fish. Jamaica was completely overfished mm. in the 1700s. They were importing fish from the Grand Banks up off of New England. And it was expensive. So, ah, we, got, we need to grow more food for these, these slaves here. So even back, you know, hundreds of years ago, we could overfish the oceans.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And it caused issues yeah and it's there's things like that. It's, it's this idea, it's not even an idea, it's just the, the thoughtlessness of humans, mm-hmm. myself included on many occasions, that we just do things and not think of the downstream ramifications. Yeah. So then how does this come through in the riot and the dance? Well, interestingly, he's not harping on environmentalism. He's not beaten his war drum that you know we need to protect Mother nature. He's just exulting in God's creation. And when you do that, that's a very, a psychologically and spiritually, a very interesting effect. Because if you start rejoicing in what God created, the natural response is you don't want to ruin it. Yeah. Yeah. If you see a, if you look at the beauty of a snake, you just don't want to go chop the head
0: off the snake with your hoe. And this comes up several times in the film where he shows an animal, an insect that is gorgeous. And he says, "Look, this is really great. This is so interesting to behold. Look This thing is alive." But then other times he's looking at something that is downright creepy: a yeah. bug, a, a tarantula, a cobra. And he, he's describing the deadly factor of this be, this creature. It's, just not, it's not safe for anyone in the right mind to be around. And he's still rejoicing about that thing. He's talking it up. He is advocating for, at one point, wasn't it bats? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and, and you grant you this documentary came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. I think he would have ultimately said the same thing, but ch- chosen different words, given uh, the, the current situation with COVID-19. Yeah. But Give his the bats their, their space. But bats are wonderful creatures. But Rob, doesn't it, at the end of the day and at the end of the science, uh, basically come down to... You can get bad viruses, bacteria and pathogens from a eating a cat or a cow or a oh, yeah. chicken or goat and tapeworms a bat. from
1: cows, we get tuberculosis from cows or sheep. Um that's probably where it came from. We get all sorts of diseases from all sorts of animals. They're called mm-hmm. zoonotics and they've been infesting humans for a long, long, long time. Theoretically, we could breed clean bats, but the thing is the bat their immune system is very different. They actually harbor a lot of viruses all at the same time, and their immune system is ramped way up compared to most other animals. It's got something to do with the the fact that they live in giant colonies, and yet those giant colonies don't get wiped out by diseases. Like, if we all packed ourselves together in one giant colony slept, like, standing up next to each other, you know, one bug would just go through the whole entire human population. So the problem is that With so many people, we're coming in contact with viruses we never came in contact with before. And so the
0: recipe for a virus jumping to humans is just there because there's 7 billion of us. (sighs) Hmm. Okay, so then let's just talk a little bit about the overview of this nature documentary. If you're not familiar with it, you see a lot of Dr. Gordon Wilson. He's actually the, I think, if not the first thing you see when you're done watching the film, you remember that he was talking directly to camera. Yeah. At the beginning,
1: I was I was really impressed with the presentation. You know, the the he's a white guy wearing a black
0: T-shirt with a black background. It just looked really sharp. I want you to think about what I'm about to say. It's not preachy. It's not just at all. it's really man to man. It yeah. is. It's actually got a nice slow pace to it. It's reasonable, common sense type approach to let's frame why we can and how we can enjoy a documentary from. My point of view. And I just feel like as it goes throughout the film, it's not so much that he's trying to preach at anyone. He just wants you to have his point of view as it comes to these creatures.
1: And he does a good job of doing that without being sanctimonious. Yeah. So many Greenpeace and, and all those organizations, you know, they just they can be really bitter. And I see nothing bitter about
0: this man's presentation. Like you said, you would have enjoyed him as a professor in school. I would have loved him as a professor. And I could see enjoying him as a tour guide, being on the field. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's what you get as a taste of this in this documentary. He takes you out on the field. He wants you to see the creatures that he really wants to see for himself. A lot of them are like his favorites and his favorite locales.
1: Well, in the second movie, there are some things that were not his favorite at all. In fact, some of the things Ooh. that I might have been uncomfortable, like diving with sharks without the shark cage sort of thing. You know, there's some really fun things. Swimming with alligators.
0: What? Excuse me? <laughs> wow the guy
1: loves this material
0: (laughs) he loves the subject (laughs) well see the thing is and a lot of the stuff he did in this film you would have thought that it it should have been uncomfortable like handling a scorpion and the the deadly spiders
1: yeah but you see if you learn about these things you learn how to handle them you learn what their strengths and weaknesses are their danger points and not danger points i mean you got to watch out for dogs
0: Mm -hmm. you know you kick a dog he's gonna turn around and bite you Okay, don't do that. And that was one of his points early in the film was we just want to, and I believe we all should bear the responsibility of learning how to engage with nature, with the various creatures, with the plants, with the habitats, with them on an individual basis. And so he often talks about the lizard as like, go on, my friend, when he puts it down and, you know, wishes him a fond farewell. And it's just nice. It's just refreshing to hear him treat the creatures with a a decent amount of appreciation.
1: But the appreciation comes from appreciation of God's creation. It's not like that lizard's his brother or spirit friend or anything like that. No, it's God made that creature. God made me. God made me in an amazing way. God made that creature in an
0: amazing way. He quotes the scripture throughout, pointing out how scripture obviously echoes this. I, I wouldn't even say echoes. It is a, a just expressing this appreciation for nature and what God has done with his handiwork.
1: That's one thing that surprised me in the book, a different shade of green is how many scriptures he brought up. I had no idea how much of the, of the Bible applies to the environment. It was generally shocking. And I'm, you know, I think I'm reasonably well versed in scripture and reasonably well, well versed in science And yet he taught me a lot of things that I didn't know. Fascinating. I I love that kind of a person. I want to be that kind of a person. And I I love it when I meet people like that who can just tell me stuff I had no idea of. But what about this movie from a quality perspective? I mean, you are a movie maker. Yeah. You have made movies. You made a movie released
0: in theaters. Mm -hmm. So here we have another movie maker. How's he doing? He did a very good job. I really enjoyed it. I think I could watch it again. And we watched it with the children. And that's usually a good way to get out of my head and the things that matter to me. Because I want to see it from my wife's point of view and the children's point of view as well. And going back to when I was introduced to this, Rob, I remember seeing you looking into the film, taking some notes down about it. And I think you told me that you were excited about it. Oh, yeah. And this was more than a year ago.
1: Yeah, the film surprised me, and I, I enjoyed it a lot.
0: Yeah, and being the filmmaker that I am, I was skeptical, because I'll I'll save a little bit of time in the year to watch a few nature documentaries. But I really got to have whipped my appetite, and I just wasn't feeling it, because... I I don't watch a lot of Animal Planet. You know, I I don't think about nature documentaries. Okay, but let's
1: compare this to other nature things. You know, secular things like something like Planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Multi-million dollar production. How much do you think they was their budget for each episode on that? Millions. Millions. Uh, I know National Geographic, I heard, was about $3 million for a one-hour documentary. And it would be no different in this case. I bet they spent more, though. Because was the, they brought out all the guns for this. They got out every technology, yes. every film technique. They spent all this money making this pretty amazing thing. Sometimes a little repetitious, but the I mean, mm-hmm. cinematography is amazing. Mm-hmm. So that's like the standard, the gold standard.
0: <laughs> yeah, the very best in all nature documentaries for all time is the par for the course now. And everybody's got to live up to this. Okay, so
1: how did <laughs> Professor Wilson do
0: with his The Riot and the Dance? Surprisingly well. Oh, that's good I, to hear. Because I would say it feels comparable to comparing a a television show by the ABC to a television show by Fox. Oh. There's a little bit of difference. If you watch enough of it, you can tell where they cut the corners and they saved some money and they have different filmmakers and they have a smaller crew and they have a different production schedule and there's not as many episodes in a season. But at the end of the day, was the audience entertained? Oh, and yeah. it was actually pretty much
1: there. I remember watching the second, uh, the second ride in the dance water, and that opening scene was clip after clip after clip after clip after clip of things dealing with water. And I remember, you know, I, I starting to make my own little YouTube videos, right? So I'm I'm doing video editing and I'm I'm putting things together, and my mouth is hanging open, and I'm like, what does that guy's timeline look like? How on earth did he get all of those video clips and keep them all organized and manage and I would never do something like that. That would be
0: impossible for me. It would be so fun for me to look at it. Like I would see, it's like Inception by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> it, it, that is what the timeline looks like. It's dreams within dreams within dreams to see the sequences. And I the am program. sure. And I
1: would have no concept. I have a concept of how it's done, but I would have no capability of doing anything like that. They are light years ahead of me. And I appreciate that.
0: And what I don't notice watching these films is that it feels like it was a small budget thing made by some campy Christians that got some filmmaking gear and said, I'm a self-proclaimed filmmaker now. Please support our film production and get us through, you know, a new career path and create the new Christian Hollywood. Like, that's not what this felt like at all.
1: Nothing. In fact, now that you mention it, those sort of things bug me a lot. They bug me a lot. Pet peeves of mine. Yeah. But no, he came out of the gate. I am a professional. I can make a film and I can do a really good job on it and I'm not going to grovel for money.
0: And the film is tasteful from start to finish. Oh, it's enjoyable. It could have been on a real broadcasting network.
1: Absolutely. And better than most things that would be on a real broadcasting network. It is available on
0: Netflix and Amazon Prime. And I've seen the first of the two documentaries and I know I'm going to enjoy the second one if it's anything like the first.
1: Uh, The second one, I watched it on VidAngel. And by the way, VidAngel is free for the month of April. Oh, that's cool. So if you're here and you're listening and it's still April, you can watch it for free.
0: So VidAngel is just a really good service for families because I've been using it now for the better part of a year. There used to be a device uh, like a Blu-ray player that would filter content for families and anyone who just wants to trim out the flab. You know, if there's some language that you're sensitive to or you're not interested in watching uncomfortable innuendo and the like with your spouse, you could use this Blu-ray player and it would filter out all those modern movies and television shows for you. But the downside is that it costs like $300 just to get the player another $100 plus a year to get a membership For the new content to be filtered. Plus, you also have to manage to get a hold of the DVDs or Blu-rays that you want to play on the device. So it's very expensive. So an alternative is something like VidAngel. And it's not got all the content because a lot of the Hollywood studios have stonewalled them and said, no, you're not allowed to filter our content. Thank you very much, Christians. Go wet. Yeah, but there's a lot of them that have said yes, and it's okay, go right for it. And it's been very useful. We have saved a lot of money not getting one of those Blu-ray players and had plenty to watch. So how much Vid Angel cost per month? It's like $10, maybe $15, I think, but okay. I think it's been worth it's it. It's like a double Netflix. Yeah, and if you have an Amazon Prime account or Netflix or maybe Hulu, I'm not positive about that, but I think as well, the, the, streams like hbo you can filter hbo content if you want to watch what is it called westworld uh, and that's an interesting I'm sci-fi sure I'm you am interested
1: in that uh but something like um Uh, John Adams, exactly, was an amazing, unbelievable documentary or miniseries, and
0: it's not you know. But there was
1: one scene because his daughter-in-law got breast cancer, right? And they, you know, there's an operation, right? And well, you know, I didn't need to see that, right? But it was part of the historical record. And man, just taking that one little thing out, and the whole thing is is the bomb. I mean, it's an excellent, excellent miniseries.
0: And so, if your sensibilities about your entertainment echoed here with Rob and I then it sounds like The Riot and The Dance was the kind of nature documentary that was made for a person like you. Because it doesn't feel campy. It doesn't feel like a small budget production made for a film festival. It feels like out of the gate. This is just a a very enjoyable watch. You could have seen this at an IMAX theater. If you don't know what those are, here in the United States are enormous screens. and. It would have just been so interesting. I remember thinking when he was looking at the snakes and reptiles up close and showing details of the scales, that my eyes were saying, I'm seeing details I've never seen before in a nature documentary. How have I missed this? Yeah, I saw things I'd never noticed. And I I thought to myself, this would have been quite compelling on a IMAX screen. All right, so obviously we're giving
1: these uh, productions a giant thumbs up, but... Any review, any critique comes with some negatives.
0: Yeah. And just my honest personal taste kind of preference differences. Okay.
1: So I didn't, as, you know, as an consumer, I didn't notice anything I found objectionable or weak or anything like that. But as a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. tell me
0: something. I want nature documentaries to be wondrous from start to finish and just be sort of like explosive to my imagination and take me there. But because of his journal-like approach to the story or the film, it felt like he wanted you to see his documentary. This is his point of view. This is the stuff that he wanted to see and handle. And he wants me to see. So he is behind the camera and in front of the camera. And he's a good enough personality that it works all the time. But I, I don't know. Like, as somebody who's a city guy, a city dweller, and who is indoors a lot in an office with no windows? I really, when I when I want to enjoy nature, I want to soak it up for all its worth. I saw on screen not not a lot of city, but there were some buildings and there were a lot of humans there to be in the foreground to handle a thing to show me using the night vision cameras. You know, I'm seeing a lot of their outdoorsy hiking boots and they're like rubber made boots plus pants that you can wade through a swamp in waiters really how is yeah. that close to what they're called <laughs> yeah. oh i didn't even know so i'm seeing a lot of that and it's like oh there's a gorgeous dragonfly okay why am i looking at the guy in his waiters, okay, this is the gorgeous dragon flag. It. And it's like, cut, 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 cut. And I'm seeing a lot of if excellent nature, but then I'm also just taken out of the moment over and over again to see the guy pointing at a thing. But with a lot of cuts, I'm seeing a lot of the guy included in the nature. And it was just a little bit more than I wanted for the storyline. Interesting.
1: See, for me as a non-city dweller, as a person who, yes, I work in an office with no windows and it drives me nuts. Uh I am an avid outdoor person, not an outdoorsman, but I'm an, I'm, I've am i done lots of hiking, kayaking, rock climbing. I've spent I don't know how many days on boats, on coral reefs, scuba diving. I could not even count up the number of days. Fossil digging, canoeing. Uh, I, I am outside as much as I can, at least when I was younger. So watching this, though, here's a guy who's able to live both lives. You know, he's a teacher, so he's in the classroom a lot, but then He's out and he's traveling and he's seeing all these amazing things and he's seeing things that I've never seen.
0: He's the kind of professor you would want like Indiana Jones, like a great class teacher and good on the field. Yeah, but he doesn't hate snakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's more like Indiana Jones's dad. He could <laughs> handle those. He's got more in common with Professor Jones than Indiana <clears throat> The other thing I wouldn't say is it's not a harsh criticism. It's not a big deal. But grant you because he was trying to show me the things that he just really geeks out about. He focuses a good deal on birds plus reptiles and snakes. So I really enjoy the exotic birds. I, I, I could handle a lot of nature documentaries about those. But that was a bit more of the lizards than I... I mean, I'm not even a big fan of elephants. I've seen a lot of elephant con- content, and I'm kind of elephant out. But I would have even appreciated a little bit more about the elephants in the documentary than he had. And he does have a great bit. It was just a little bit short for my taste, given he was doing such a good job with it. But let's get back to those snakes and interesting reptiles. Well, that's because he's a snake and reptile guy. He's showing you what he loves. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it boils down to just my preference. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I can't really say that there was any other major negative. Cool. So, the, so the music was fun. That was something that you and I were talking about before the show.
1: Yeah. Watching the credits and looking at all of the songs that flew by. It's like, I didn't even remember how many different musical parts there were. A couple of times times, like, oh yeah, I'm bopping along to some cool music. But the mark for me of a good score is a score you don't recognize. It's driving your emotional engagement, but it's not actually telling you that it's driving your emotional engagement. So they picked music that was pretty much spot on.
0: It's always fun to see how it keeps in time with the creatures or the swaying of the trees or the rain hitting the leaves. or And that's hard. Yeah.
1: That's hard stuff. But so whoever that song picker and sound editor is, Gordon, you got a good person on hand there. You better keep him
0: or her. I definitely want to watch more documentaries. It actually inspires me. To watch more nature documentaries, but I just know that I have watched a lot over the course of a lifetime that have left me feeling the sour grapes in my mouth, the 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 bitter sweetness of. Planet Earth is a beautiful place, but it's also falling apart, and it's man's fault. Yes, but he gets into that. That's how a lot of the other nature documentaries just kind of leave you hanging, like. But he and doesn't it's leave you hanging. Fault. He does say there's bad stuff here. There's poisonous and blah 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 blah. However. I'm waiting for
1: Christ to return and redeem this creation. So alligators aren't going to eat people anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. So cobras aren't going to kill people very anymore. Very effective there at the end of the
1: film. Yeah. A did, point to it all. He did it in both, in both films. That Yeah, there's, there are scary things in the world, but our hope is in Christ, who's going to redeem this world and set everything right again. That's a, it's a very good answer to the environmental conundrum.
0: Speaking of which, um, kind of related to this, uh, 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 what you just brought up, Rob, can you explain what that means to the new heavens and earth concerning nature and the other creatures in in a a nutshell?
1: If you go to creation.com, type in new heavens and earth, you come up with an excellent article that deals with the biblical teaching on where things are going to go. And it's clear from the Bible that we're not going to be floating around in clouds with wings and a harp. That's a very non-biblical idea. Uh, the Bible says that God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And so I imagine, I imagine heaven, in fact, but scare quotes up, as in, an Edenic paradise where we're back in the garden or garden-like setting with no suffering, no death, no problems, and God is going to recreate everything for us to live in that sort of a setting forever, Now, I know you read Revelation, right? All these people and God's on his throne, all these people are, you know, bowing down and whatnot. A lot of
0: music and, yeah. Yeah, I don't... Pomp and circumstance.
1: This is not the eternal state. The eternal state will be a recreated
0: earth that we get to live on. And enjoy freely without the terror of being poisoned to death by a a cobra. Yeah, maybe there'd be mosasaurs in the ocean,
1: but they're not going to be eating up 50 people in one gulp. I don't know. I don't know what God's going to recreate or what it's going to be, but it's going to be a functioning ecology. There will be trees. There will be detritivores that eat leaves and break them down into soil and and things like that. And so, therefore, there'll be things that will have to recycle. That means eat stuff.
0: We're not going to be laying waste to all of nature at that point.
1: No, we will at that point know how to interact with nature in a net positive way. Even better than neutral. It'll be net positive. Things will get better over time.
0: So I think that does most of the things that I wanted to say about the film and uh, that you wanted to discuss about environmentalism. I have. Can we
1: hit some pretty big environmental ideas? Sure. Global warming, sea level rise, things like that. Get a shot.
0: What are some of the other environmentalist questions, the topics that are raised by the film and from our worldview?
1: Well, from the film going forward, we still have questions about, you know, what about global warming? What about sea level rise? What about uh, recycling? Those are questions that the Christian needs to actively engage with. I mean, one of my favorite things about aluminum cans is that they're about the perfect thing to recycle. You can buy a can off a shelf in a store, drink it, throw it in a recycle bin. Four months later, it's been melted down remade into a can, filled up with Coke, and put back on the shelf again.
0: Practically the same thing again.
1: It's almost a perfect recyclable thing, and it costs so much energy to pull it out of the ground in the first place. Once you have the aluminum, just putting in that recycle system is is really smart economically. There are things that don't recycle very well, but we're figuring that out.
0: I remember a friend of mine visited a place where they fabricate glass, and they were also responsible for recycling it. Outside of the, this facility, they had an ugly mountain of broken and melted glass, all different colors, just way above your head. And my friend asked the people that worked there, what's that? And they're like, well, that's all the glass that we can't get around to recycling.
1: Because of so much glass.
0: Yeah, and they're not efficient, and they haven't figured out the way to make good use of it.
1: But we will figure it out because you know what? A pile like that Mm -hmm. is money. Yep. It takes one entrepreneur to say, oh, I can do something with that. And boom, something new comes out. That's very interesting. But how do we handle things like, you know, the the sea level rise question? Global warming is going to flood us all. Is that true (laughs) or is that just scare tactics? Well, honestly, listener, if we apply science to this, we have satellites that are constantly measuring sea level. We have satellites that are constantly measuring the amount of ice on Antarctica. We can measure using geometry and satellite alt- altimeter measurements how much ice is on Antarctica and the amount of ice is going down over time. Well, that water has to go into the ocean, which contributes to sea level rises like three centimeters of sea level rise or something like that is nothing life threatening.
0: That's the thing about, yeah, be careful that you got your ideas about sea level rise coming from something like a Hollywood movie oh, man, yeah. or a scare tactic documentary where it's like today you went to bed in a dry place. Tomorrow you woke up and your bed was wet. Well,
1: <laughs> Venice just flooded. Venice, Italy. I mean, it had one of the worst floods ever, but they had a southern breeze that was blowing water up the Adriatic and Venice is at the north end of the Adriatic and they had X, Y, and Z, and all these environmental things all came together that had flooded, that wasn't sea level rise. The sea level has not gone up two feet. hasn't gone up 10 feet. It's gone up a minuscule amount. But it's measurable, and it has. And so we have to say, okay, is this a threat? Do we have to worry about it? Well, there's one particular glacier in Antarctica that's sitting on the ground. It's out in the ocean, but it's sitting on the ground. If that ever, if the seawater ever gets to it, I think global sea level will come up two feet. Hmm. And there's nothing preventing that from happening. There's nothing at all. In fact, in history, sea level has changed. They estimate that about a million people used to live on what is now the bottom of the North Sea between England and Holland. It's called Doggerland. Archaeologists are now scuba diving in the North Sea going down 60 to 80 feet. <laughs> and there are farms, there's stuff, oh, there's so arrowheads, neat. there's wow. people used to live in what is now underwater. That's so cool. So, in historical period, sea level has changed. If it changes two feet, do you know what an economic disaster that would be for us? Hmm. We would have to either move or build seawalls around every major city in the U.S. and around the world. From Shanghai, New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, Miami. I mean, this will be trillions of dollars of infrastructure changes. Mm. And so, just from a stewardship perspective... We need to be able to, without all the politics and all the scare scare scaremongering and everything like that, we need to say, okay, what do the numbers tell us? What is the actual threat of this happening? If this happens, what should our response be? And that's the hardest thing for people to to do because I don't see much sanity in the environmental movement not yet. We could get there. Well, it's a lot of fear mongering. Yeah, but what if this does happen, Christian? Come on, conservative, who's Mm -hmm. not concerned about a sea level rise? If Something like that happened. How would your life be affected? It would be a major effect. I'm mean, just think about right now, right? Our economy just got shut down because of a little virus. Yeah. Who would have ever have thought a year ago, oh, yeah, uh, a year from now, the governments can tell everyone in America to stay home for two months. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and no. No one would have imagined that. No. And and look what it's doing. It's like a belly kick. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, this hurts. And we're, it's going to take us a long time economically to recover from this. Mm-hmm. So, what if sea level suddenly changed because one the glacier of doom suddenly melted? That would be bad.
0: We'd I mean, all see it. Even the virus has not been something that got everyone sick. No. But the waterfront would be affecting us in a very dramatic well, way. Well, except
1: for us, you know, we live near Atlanta. And if we own a piece of property in Atlanta, our property values will skyrocket because there's all these people from Florida that are mm. going to be moving north. Oh. So, there's a net positive for some people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's I'm just you got all the wheels turning in my head now, Rob. Now I'm thinking about, oh wow, can we just take one global catastrophe at a time?
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably wise. You know when, <laughs> we, when we do our coral reef episode and we will do one, we're also going to talk about carbon dioxide, and forgetting even the global warming question, carbon dioxide negatively affects corals. Oh, there's a chemistry in the water that we'll talk about. but carbon dioxide is what trees breathe, right? Yeah, and the uh, Sahara Desert is shrinking. Satellite measurements, we can measure chlorophyll from space. Oh. And the Sahara Desert, the edges are greening. As awesome. Because more carbon
0: dioxide means plants need less water to grow. That is Boom. awesome. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up. A fantastic discussion. I'm going to oh, enjoy We just started, man. It. We just started. There's so much more. Well, the good news is there's going to be an, at least an episode 10. Okay. So thank you so much for joining us on our quest. If you want to dig deeper into this episode's topics, you can find the links to articles in the documentary and the books by Gordon Wilson in the show notes for this episode on our website. Hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash nine for this episode. And if you want us to discuss another science topic or a documentary that you have in mind, uh, tweet to us at podcast equinox is our handle. So We'll get your idea in the queue. And you can find us on Twitter. Rob is there as well. He is Bible Genetics, based on his YouTube channel's name and his Facebook page. And my handle at Twitter is at JCS Darnell. And if you're not already watching Rob's videos, go check them out. They are Biblical Genetics on Facebook or YouTube. He's addressing a lot of genetics subjects, and I'm sure he's going to get to other things as well, which he has already done from time to time. Time to time. Fantastic. That's how I like it. And uh, you're going to go deeper into all of the topics. If uh, he didn't have the time to discuss it here, he's definitely talked about it there and vice versa. So until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox.